continuing on in our series on the King and his cross in Remarks Gospel this morning. And when I say the phrase call and response, what does that conjure up for you? For many different people, it conjures up lots of different things. Um, maybe for you, you are a big sports fanatic. And so when you go to a football match or a rugby match or a game of any sort, you know there's going to be a call and response moment where there's a chant and your team's going to say something and the other team's going to say something back and there's a bit of fire in your belly. And you know that in that moment, there's going to be that call and response moment. Or perhaps you're a little bit more awkward like me and there's that moment on the street when you call out and you enthusiastically wave at someone and they don't respond and you're like, that's awkward. Um, And it's not so much a call and response moment as much as it's just a call moment. Or maybe uh, you've grown up in a more traditional church and uh, you're used to maybe the minister or the priest or the reverend uh, doing a call and response moment in like a, in a, litur- a liturgy sense. And so, you know, they'll say something from the front and as a congregation, you'll all say something in response. Whatever it is that we think of when we think of call and response, I think we can all agree that it, they work hand in hand. One without the other feels awkward and a little bit odd. So when we have a call, we always need a response. And as we look in this next section of Mark's Gospel in chapter 3, we see one of the ultimate call and response moments in the Gospels. That's when Jesus calls the 12 disciples to him. And so we're going to read a little bit before that moment, just for the context, and then we're going to go right into that moment where Jesus calls the disciples. So, Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called uh, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. um, To them he gave the name, I don't know how to pronounce this, Boanerges. That sounds a bit more French than uh, But anyways, um, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are amongst us right now. And Lord God, we thank you that when we open your word, that you speak to us. And Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves before you and ask that you would open our minds. You would open our ears and our hearts to the things of you this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would be submitted to what it is that you want to say to us. Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and that it would be your words that we take home with us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I want to look at two aspects of the call and two aspects of the response. And so one of the first aspects of the call is that the call is personal. This passage, I believe, gives us a very glimpse into the personal nature of God and his call to his people. Here we have Jesus standing on the mountainside with a group of people. He's called them out of a place of the crowds into an intimate setting with him. And when he calls the twelve, he gives some of them a new name. Again, a very personal and intimate moment. And he draws them close to him in ways that actually he really didn't need to do. There's lots of things in his ministry that he could have done on his own. He was fully God. He didn't need the disciples to do that with him. But he chose to encourage people and to draw people into partnership in his kingdom work with him. He shares the workload and he shares that mantle of authority with his disciples. Here it's a very personal moment. I'm just going to grab a drink. the beginning of last year sadly we said goodbye to my granny but we rejoiced in the same way because she's now at home with Jesus but I remember at the funeral my dad kind of sharing moments of um, her life and just the things that she'd got up to the things that we knew the things that we didn't know and uh, it really dawned on me that for my dad Uh, That was his only childhood. That was the only home that he'd known outside of the one that he had when he got married. You know, he'd grown up there. He'd uh, gone back there from university. He'd brought his wife there. He'd brought his grandkids there. And so when Granny had gone, that, that was it. That was no longer his home. And a couple of months later, after the funeral, I knew it was his birthday. And so I was like, I really want to do something special for him something that will really mean a lot to him so I was racking my brains and I was sitting at home and I thought ah I was looking at a picture that had been given to us um, of Chris's grandmother's house that had been painted and I thought oh I'll get that for my dad I'll get a painting of his mum's house and so I scrolled the internet trying to find a painter who wouldn't bankrupt me but would also do something really beautiful for my dad. And uh, I was like phoning home trying to secretly understand like what kind of art he liked and what kind of things um, he liked about the house, his favorite parts of the garden, all that sort of thing on the, on the sly. And uh, once I found out, I found the perfect painter and uh, again, they didn't bankrupt me. So I was like, yes, go ahead. And so I sent it off to get painted and it came back a couple of weeks and in those couple of weeks I was so anxious because I was like this has to be right I really want this to be a perfect gift for my dad and uh, the moment came to giving it to him and again I was just really really nervous because I was like I really want this to be right I want this to be a special moment I want him to know that I've thought about this and I care about him and as I gave it to him I won't go into his reaction because that's you know between me and my dad but it was bef- it was way better than I had hoped for this really personal moment from this personal gift and I think that that is just a mere speck in terms of the comparison of the nature of God when he gives us each a gift of calling into personal relationship with him and the calling on our lives that he gives us if you think about it the creator of all heaven and earth, the author of the galaxies and the planets, the very DNA in our body subscribed to him, the sculptor of nature and space. And it is so personal in his nature, our majestic God, 
but that he desires to call each of us by name, to give us a gift in calling us to him. That even, you know, the 7.5 billion people in the world today, and that's just today, he wants to call each of them by name. He does call each of them by name. And this passage, when Jesus calls the 12 to become disciples, is deeply personal. And it does point, again, to the personal nature of um, the call that God gives each of us. And I love that he calls James and John sons of thunder, because I think it brings a humanity to the passage. And it's not just a case of, oh, I don't really like your name, but it's like, actually, I'm going to give you a new name. And there's a sense of humor in it as well, and there's a sense of intimacy, there's a sense of connectedness in that moment. And we can see that right throughout scripture, the personal nature each time God calls someone to partner with him in his kingdom work. In Exodus 3, verse 4, we see Moses, and he's at the burning bush, and there's a voice coming from the burning bush, Moses, Moses. God is using his name as he calls him into partner to see um, his people delivered from slavery. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, we see Abraham, he's about to sacrifice his son um, because he believes that that's what God has asked him to do. But God, through his mercy, through an angel, says, Abraham, Abraham. And he gives him a new direction. He gives him the lamb instead. And in that moment, Abraham then goes on to partner with God in being the father of a nation. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 to 10, we see the young Samuel. He's sleeping and he hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel. And again, in that moment, God personally calls him by name and draws him into an appointment where he becomes a mouthpiece of God to the nation, a judge, a priest, an anointer of kings. And from the New Testament, in Luke 22, Jesus has just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And in that moment, he highlights to Simon Peter, you're going to betray me. But after that, you're also going to be a great encourager of the believers afterwards. And Peter does deny Jesus, but he does go on to be one of the um, you know, greatest leaders in the early church. But what I love about that moment and the moments following after is that tender moment when Jesus calls Simon Peter back to him after Jesus returns. And Simon Peter has denied Jesus, but Jesus says to Simon, he says, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. As he reinstates him, as he gives him yet another call into partnering with his kingdom work, he uses his name. It's a deeply personal moment. And in each moment in scripture, and these are just but a few, God the Father, God the Son, through the Holy Spirit, calls his people in the most personal way using their name and bringing them closer to him first and to his partnership. And there's another story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10, where just after Jesus has uh, called the disciples, he sends them out to go preach and to cast out demons, but he also sends out 72 others. And they've all gone and done that. They've preached the Gospel and they've cast out demons. And they come back and they're all excited because they want to tell Jesus about the great works that they've done in his name. But Jesus reminds them this. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I love that. It's like two bookends. 
Jesus calls the disciples at the mountainside, separated in an intimate moment with him. And he sends them out amongst the rest. And when, he ret- when they all return, he calls them back into intimacy, reminding them it's not, what about, it's not about what you do, but it's about the fact that your names are written in heaven. And I think that that's a great way to start our year with God and the truth of his deeply personal nature and his intimate call to discipleship and partnership with him. Because I think it's so easy, I'm definitely a to-do list person, but at the start of the year we can sit down and we can write everything that we need to do, everything that we need to achieve by when we need to have achieved it by. And actually we can sometimes miss the pursuit and that personal nature of God's call on our lives as he wants to draw us closer to his partnership in terms of what his plans for us are, what his purposes are, his presence that he wants to bring to each of us. And we can lose that in the midst of busyness. Maybe as we've never heard God's voice before and so we don't even know what it sounds like or maybe as we haven't heard it for a long time. But I believe that this morning, God wants to remind us that when he does call us into partnership with him, that it is deeply personal, that he calls us by name, that he knows who we are, and that he is with us. So, the call is personal. Secondly, the call is risky. Risk is a word that I don't think we often associate with positive um, vibes. We often think of risk involving negative things. Um, But quite often through the Bible, risk is a very positive thing. And for those of you who've been around the block a few times, uh, you may know this kind of well-known quip, how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. It's often in Sunday schools. uh, I think we've said it from the front a few times, but people use it. And I think it's true, you know, whilst it's a little bit cheesy and a bit corny, it is true. When we step out in faith, it involves risk. And I was kind of thinking about some of the, the great missionaries and some of the people who've done amazing work for God. And I was reminded of Jackie Pullinger's story. And she, when she was 22 in the 60s, went out and said, do you know what, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the mission field, show me what you want to do. And she'd been denied from a whole bunch of missionary organizations. And um, so somebody in Shoreditch, her pastor in Shoreditch said to her, just book a boat trip and head off and just pray as to when you need to get off. And so she did, and she got off in Hong Kong. She didn't have very much money. She didn't have the language, but she did. She got off in Hong Kong and ended up in the walled city of Kowloon. And there, in that city, was a whole place filled with the triads, gangs, uh, prostitution, opium dens. It was just filled with poverty and death. But yet she began slowly but surely to begin a 50-year journey of ministering to the people, seeing them set free, seeing Jesus shared, seeing people um, saved, and proclaiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It was an incredible moment. But if you think about it, a 22-year-old English woman in the 60s going off to Hong Kong on her own, that involves a lot of risk, doesn't it? And these are the stories that we hear in the Christian circuits and at Christian conferences. But what I love is that we are filled with a church where we have stories of that, of our own. We have people in our church where they have smuggled Bibles into communist countries. We have people in our church who 
have risked what their work colleagues think of them in order to share Jesus. And as a result, they've seen their work colleagues come to faith and become part of the family here at City. We've had people who have decided, you know what, I'm going to stop that person on the street and say, do you want me to pray with you? And as a result, they've drawn them closer to Jesus and they've seen Jesus um, accepted into that person's life. And we've had people who have become Christians here in Aberdeen and then for them that's a huge risk because they have to go back to their family and say, I now follow Jesus. We have stories all all like that across our church where risk is an everyday part of following Jesus. And so if faith is spelled R-I-S-K, then I think risk should be spelled J-E-S-U-S. Why? Twofold. Because when we follow Jesus, we embark on a journey of risk. Yet when we embark on that journey, we have Jesus. Jesus didn't send out um, the disciples with the commission of preaching and setting people free without giving them first himself. Verse 14, he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. He's drawn them into intimacy and he sent them out with his authority. They aren't to go to the far cities and towns on their own, but with his power and his authority. And I love that about God. Whenever he calls people into his call and his plans and purpose for them, purposes for them he shows them himself and says that he will be with them in Isaiah 43 it says this but now this is what the Lord says he who created you Jacob he who formed you Israel do not fear for I have redeemed you I have summoned you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters I will be with you when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I love that promise. And what I love even more about that is that he fulfilled that and his answer to that was Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In that moment where Jesus says, it is finished, then we have the assurance that when we step out for faith in God, that he is there with us, that no power of the enemy can stop us because he has gone before us. That work on the cross has made it possible. And if we are going to see more faces in this room, sorry, that's a guilt park thing, but if we're going to see more faces in our buildings, wherever we are across um, our sites, And that is going to involve risk. It's going to involve maybe losing our dignity at moments. (laughs) If we want to see more sites launched and more churches planted, then that is going to involve a great deal of risk. And so maybe it's a question for us this morning, is what are the risks that God is asking us to take this year? And it can be quite daunting to ask God that question because most of the time he answers. In fact, all of the time he answers. (laughs) And so maybe um, after we can approach God in prayer and we can say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do this year? What are your plans? What are your purposes for my life? And how am I going to step out? Because the truth is that when we do, he is with us. He's given us himself. And so we have two aspects of the call. The call is personal and the call involves risk. And so what does our response like look like? Firstly, I think our response is one of urgency and immediacy. I'm just going to grab another drink.
is a scholar called Donald English, which I just love that name, Donald English. It's a great name, solid name. Um, Donald Grange, maybe? No, I'm joking. joking. Um, <clears throat> anyways, he writes for the Bible Speaks Today, and he breaks this call down into three uh, sections, three stages. And he talks about the first stage being Jesus draws them in intimacy. He draws them to the mountainside. There's a distinct separation from the crowd to this moment. He calls them, so there's an emphasis on Jesus being the one who calls them. And then finally, there's a response. They came. Um, Jesus called the disciples and they came straight away. And I think that this highlights um, a huge theme across the whole of Mark's gospel. We see Mark as somebody who's a bit of a doesn't beat around the bush type of guy. But there is a, a theme of urgency and immediacy right across the gospel of Mark. And I think that this is one of the moments it points to it. When Jesus calls, the disciples immediately come to him. And I reckon when we think about those call and response moments, I think if we think about those in an everyday situation, um, most people will think about that moment where mum and dad call us down for dinner. And that could be happening now, or that could be something that we reminisce from when we were back at home. But when mum and dad, or whoever, parent, carer, call us down to dinner, the response that they're not expecting is, in a minute, or I'm not very hungry, or I'll just finish my game. Like, that is not what they're wanting in that moment. What they're wanting in that moment is, yes, I'll be done right away. Do you want me to set the table? Is there anything I can do? That is the response that they want. Because let's be honest, there is nothing worse than having the dinner ready, sitting down, and then you're waiting for someone, watching the dinner go cold, and uh, they're just kind of taking their fine time getting to the dinner table. And I wonder what camp we're in when it comes to Jesus calling us. Are we in the camp of, in a minute? Or are we in the camp of, yes, I'm coming, what can I do? I know that I fall into both categories, but more often than not, I fall into the category of, in a minute. But here in this moment, with the disciples, there seems to be a trust they have seen Jesus do the back and forward with the learned community in the temples and in the synagogues. They have watched as he's catched, catched? <laughs> cast out demons and healed the sick. They know his power and his presence and so they are quick to follow. And one of our values at City Church is urgency. It's on the board there, checked, double checked before. <laughs> But this isn't a headless chicken urgency which devalues the use of our brain. But this is a purposeful urgency. This is an urgency taken from scripture that we live not knowing when Jesus will return. And so we run as fervently as we can in the race set ahead of us until we're taken home or he comes back. An immediate response is not always easy, I get that. Sometimes we miss a prompt. Sometimes we get the fear of responding. Sometimes we're at the point where, to be honest, we just don't care enough. We're a bit apathetic. And sometimes we just don't know how to respond. But I love that Jesus often has an answer for everything. And in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus is sensing that the disciples need comforting. They need his presence. And... I think it's one of the most tender passages in the Gospels. And it's a huge section, but there's just a little bit in verse 27 where he says this. Peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give you. Do not give, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And I believe that that is the Lord's heart for us this morning. That when he calls us, when he whispers our name, he gives us his peace. And he gives us the assurance that he is with us. And that when we walk in that truth, then our response of immediacy and urgency begins to come with it too. And I wonder for some of us this morning, maybe as we're sitting on dreams and hopes and things that we have had on the back burner for a very long time now. And we know that God is prompting us. But maybe there's just something stopping us from giving him our response. But I believe that God wants to bring his comfort again this morning and his reminder that he is with us. That we, we, when we step out, when we give him our yes, he doesn't leave us on our own. And so what are the things that we're maybe putting off this morning? What are the things that we need to maybe respond to Jesus with urgency and with immediacy in our lives? And then finally, the response is authentic. I love the fact that Jesus is called imperfect and ordinary people, workmen, fishermen, tax collector, and a potential Jewish zealot. And he's commissioned them to partner in with his kingdom work. That definitely lets the rest of us off on the hook. And you could easily think in that moment, I know that I would be thinking in that moment, why us? (laughs) Why me? What can I bring to the table? Surely there must have been someone else. Yet with Jesus' deeply personal call, it requires the same response from us, an authentic response in that moment each man just had to bring themselves to the table in order to be used to the fullness of what Jesus had for them I'm sure we all have those moments at school where we have embarrassing moments I have plenty I have just resigned myself to the fact that I am a person where embarrassing moments follow me like a plague (laughs) Um, but hey-ho but I remember when I was in first year of school and my friend's birthday was coming up it was just before Christmas and all my friends were talking about the things they were going to get her and they were all really expensive things they're all really fancy things and I was like I'm 11 or 12 I don't have the money for this I don't get pocket money and so I was panicking thinking I don't have a gift to give her like everybody else's so I came up with something handmade as I always did and did something for her and then the day came when it was her birthday and we were giving her the gifts and everyone gave their gifts first and they were all amazing and I just felt really embarrassed so I lied and I said, oh, I forgot my present. I'll give it to you tomorrow. And um, so I went home and panicked and I was like, oh, what am I going to get her? And because it was Christmas, um, we decided to pull a cracker at the dinner table. And so we pulled a cracker. And in my cracker, there was a pair of like gold looking, they definitely weren't gold, uh, but gold looking star earrings. And I was like, oh, I will wrap those up. (laughs) So cringe. I'll wrap those up and I'll give them to her. And it will look like a really expensive pair of earrings. So the next day I went into class and I was like, oh, I've got these earrings. And Pinocchio strikes again. And I'm like, just had to pick them up from the jewelers. And I hope you really like them. And so she was like, oh, thanks so much. They must have been so expensive. I was like, yeah, yeah, so expensive. Um, Anyway, so we had Christmas. And uh, that was lovely. And then we all returned back and... 
a few of the girls were laughing, and I was like, why are you laughing? And uh, they were like, oh, so those earrings that you got for person, uh, where did you get them from again? I was like, oh, just this jewelers. And they were like, oh, okay, because uh, she opened a cracker at Christmas time, and she got, like, the same pair of earrings. And I was like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. And I was absolutely mortified. I was so gutted. And I knew in that moment I should have just given her the handmade gift because at least then I wouldn't have been as embarrassed as I was in that moment. But when we try and be somebody or something else and who we are, it often ends up badly one way or the other. Either people suss us out or we completely burn out trying to be someone that we're not. Jesus had called the disciples because he had chosen them for the task at hand and he knew that they would be the right people. He knew that they weren't perfect. He knew that perhaps they weren't the best communicators, that one of them would betray him, that one of them would deny him. They maybe weren't the most humble. But he knew that in his presence and through their willingness that they could be guided in the right direction. And that is true right throughout scripture. People are chosen in spite of and because of their character. And again, it speaks to that personal God that he knows the task ahead and he knows exactly who to call into it. Esther was known for her beauty and her devotion to God. And so she was called into King Xerxes' um, court. She became his wife and as a result um, saved the Jewish people at that time. And I love that um, scripture in Esther. Perhaps you've been created for such a time as this. I think that speaks volumes right across scripture to the personal nature of God, the personal nature of the call, and the fact that he wants us to be authentic in who we are and what we can bring to the table. Moses, despite an evident speech problem, speech impediment and nervousness is it called to entire um, to deliver an entire nation again somebody who wouldn't have been likely for the job but God knew what he needed and he called Moses in the New Testament Paul formerly Saul a zealot and a plotter against the Christian community passionate and dedicated to the cause the wrong cause <laughs> but was called by God in one of the greatest Um, to be one of the greatest apostolic leaders in the early church and therefore kind of founded a huge chunk of the New Testament literature. God knew their strengths and their weaknesses and yet in spite of that, he called them because he knew that he needed that individual. And around this time of year, we have that saying, don't we? New year, new me. Going to go to the gym. Going to lose a couple of pounds going to cut my hair, I'm going to change my style, whatever. And I think that phrase is good in lots of ways because, you know, promotes um, growth of a person and it, well, not in that way, but but it promotes us to kind of self-better ourselves. But there is a bitterness to that as well if we kind of strive and slip into something that we're not and and someone that we're not. If we try and look at somebody and we think, oh, I'm going to be like them this year or I'm going to try and do that thing this year, which just isn't us. But actually, this year, as we look out into the new year, remembering when we ask God, what is it the risk that you want us to take or what is it that you want me to do in your plans and purposes this year? 
that we ask in God at the same time, show me how to be me, show me how to be authentic when I respond to that call, that I don't burn out trying to be someone else, I don't get sussed out because I'm trying to do something that is just not me. Because the beauty is of the body of Christ, that we're all called to be different. And so what the plan and purpose that God has for you is the exact plan and purpose that God has for you. He has designed that and tasked that in order that you can do it. And so as we think ahead, let's be reminded that the call is personal. We have a very personal God, somebody who loves us deeply, who wants that intimate connection with us, who wants to partner with us. Not that we just be doing stuff for him, but that we be doing stuff with him. And that involves risk. Are we willing to take that risk? And are we willing to be immediate in our response to him?